Some who have gone up to uh, Pigeon Forge for the CYC, the Challenge Youth Conference, and they are on their way home today, and so we pray for their continued safety as they travel. But we're glad that you're here with us at Midway today. As you see on the screen, the topic or the title of our lesson today is Don't Untie That Knot, Surviving Infidelity in Marriage. Now, as we think about that, one writer said that after the devastate or after the infidelity that took place in his marriage, he described that as the crash of a jet airplane. There was devastation and destruction, pieces of it left everywhere. And I can imagine that because I've talked to enough people who have gone through that kind of thing in their own marriage, not just the husband and the wife, but also children who have been affected And I understand and I know that there is devastation that's left after such things take place in marriage. And you know, it is becoming more and more common in our society today. As a matter of fact, some experts, and we'll put it in quotation marks for the moment, some experts claim that there are about 60% of all marriages in the United States of America that will experience some form of infidelity somewhere in that marriage. Now that seems to be a little bit high to me to have or to think that 60%, but you know, thinking about our own society and our own time, it becomes, you know, pretty apparent that it's possible that at least that many are participating in this kind of sinful thing in their life. You know, it used to be almost unheard of to, to hear of someone who is separated or someone who has, as we used to say, run off with somebody else or uh, some other kind of thing like that. But, but it's becoming more and more and more common for that to take place in marriage. And you know what? The Lord's church is not immune to that. In the years that I have been preaching, not only have I seen husbands and wives, I've seen, I've seen preachers and I've seen elders and I've seen Bible class teachers and deacons and their wives and others who have fallen prey to the, to the very thing. And, and you know, as I think about it, I guess we shouldn't be shocked because if David, a man after God's own heart, could fall for something such as uh, the adultery with which he committed with Bathsheba, uh, I'm sure that all of us could be tempted to do the same. You know, Jesus addressed the matter while he was here on earth, that is, infidelity in marriage. If you have your Bible, you may want to turn along with us today. I have some of these on the screen. But in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at verse 27, the Bible says, "...you have heard that it was said..." You shall not commit adultery. Now, of course, Jesus is quoting from the Ten Commandment law back in Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And and then if you go on down after he talks about, you know, it would be better for you to have your hand cut off or whatever and, and enter into life, He goes on down in verse 31 and says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
You see, Jesus recognized that it was uh, a part of things that happen or, you know, sins that take place within uh, marriages. And he, he said, I need to address that while I'm here. And he also addressed it in the book of Matthew chapter 19, verses 8 and 9. He said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it wasn't so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so if we were speaking about marriage, divorce and remarriage today, we'd have much more to say in regard to Matthew chapter 5, especially verse 32 and Matthew chapter 19 at verse number 9. But as we look at it, we know, and this is the point that I want us to take away from this, I want us to note that Jesus says that adultery in marriage is one of the worst things that could happen between two people, between a husband and a wife. And so that jetliner, as it's crashed and the pieces are laying there, Jesus says, I understand what is, what is taking place here. I understand just how bad it is. And as a matter of fact, he said, that's the only reason that I would allow a person to be able to divorce and remarry. It's not just because you don't like them, not because she burns the biscuits or, or something of that nature. It's because of this sexual immorality that takes place. And so Jesus addresses the matter of adultery. And this morning, I'm sure that most of us understand this. When we're talking about adultery, we're talking about uh, sexual relations with someone besides a husband or wife, a husband or wife having sexual relations between, uh, with someone who's not his, his wife or her husband. Uh, it's called fornication when it's just uh, 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 someone who is unmarried and adultery when it's uh, between someone who is married and someone else. And so Jesus says, you know, we need to take this matter very, very seriously. Adultery can break a marriage like nothing else can. But you know, the decision to separate or divorce is sometimes made out of pain, hastily made out of pain. And as I think about that, here's one thing that I believe we all need to remember. As painful as betrayal is, an effort at saving the marriage should be made. As painful as it may be, the effort should be put into saving that marriage. Now, unfortunately, sometimes family members will go to the one who has been uh, cheated on, and they'll say, you just need to divorce him, or you just need to put her away, get rid of her, you know, and find somebody else. And sometimes friends and, and other acquaintances will give that same advice. But I don't mean to sound harsh or ugly this morning, but that's ignorant advice. It's ignorant of God's Word. It's ignorant of, of the things that God teaches in His Word. Just because we are allowed to, to, to dissolve a marriage because of adultery doesn't mean that we should do that. You see, we should put some effort into saving a marriage, if at all possible. You see, there has to be room for forgiveness. Have any of you ever read the book of Hosea in the Old Testament? You see, when you turn to the book of Hosea, God instructs the prophet Hosea, I want you to get married, but I don't want you to find the, the nice girl down the street. 
who is so pure and holy, I want you to find a prostitute and marry her. And she's going to do the same thing that she's been doing after you get married. And if you read the book of Hosea, you'll know that that's exactly what happened. They had children together. She committed adultery. And God said, I want you to go and I want you to buy her back. Because he was illustrating through Hosea and Gomer, his wife, the relationship that he had with his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. And how that they had committed spiritual adultery in, in uh, uh, going after false gods, the idols that uh, were prevalent in that day. And how he was willing to forgive them and to, to bring them back and that they would be his people and he would be able to bring the Messiah into the world just as he had promised that he would. But not only that, when I turn to the book of Matthew chapter 6 verses 14 and 15, I read these words. The Bible says, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But... If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, Jesus didn't say anything about except for married people. He didn't say unless it's because your, your spouse has cheated on you that you should forgive everybody except in that case. Jesus says if we don't forgive, God will not forgive us. And so that points us back to the idea of we need to forgive and be able to, to do our part in saving the marriage. Now I know there's somebody sitting in a pew this morning here in this auditorium who's saying, well, you know, preacher, I'm going to go ahead and take a nap for the rest of this one because it doesn't apply to me. Well, you know, if you're married, even if there's never been an instance of adultery or you're not even concerned that there could be. You've been married for so long. What I'm about to say can help your marriage to be better. And so, yes, it does apply to you. And if you're not married, what we say about the things that we're going to talk about for the rest of this lesson, even if you're not married, don't even plan to get married, you do have other relationships with people. And what we're going to say this morning can help those relationships be better. Now, the remaining points of our lesson this morning are based on a book written by a man by the name of Dr. Paul Coleman. The title of the book is Forgiving Marriage. And he shares some things within that book that I believe are very biblical, have a, a biblical basis. And we'll be talking about some of those things today. And so how is it that we can help to heal a marriage? How is it that, that we can survive the infidelity in a marriage or, or make our marriage stronger or make other relationships stronger? Well, as we think about one who has been wronged, here are some things that, that we need to think about, and the one who has done the wrong must think about them as well. Number one on our list is this. We must learn to identify hurt and feel remorse. Identify hurt and feel remorse. There's one thing that you know about Jesus as you read the New Testament. Jesus showed emotions. He showed emotions on a number of different occasions and he showed a number of different emotions. When Jesus was standing at the tomb of Lazarus, what did he do? John 11:35. Jesus wept. When Jesus looked out over the sick multitudes, 
the Bible says he was filled with compassion. And there are a number of passages in the New Testament who see the, where you see the emotion of Jesus as he looks out and his heart is touched by those who, who are like sheep without a shepherd. And then when you go to the, the passages in the book of John chapter 2 and then later on again in the book of John, when Jesus is at the temple and he sees all the money changers and those who are abusing God's house and the things that, that, uh, that the, in, by the things that they were doing, Jesus became angry and he drove them out. And so we have that weeping and that compassion and that, that anger. Jesus showed emotions while he was here on this earth. Some folks think that you shouldn't show emotions. That you need to deny the feelings that you have. That you need sometimes just to overlook things and go on. And sometimes we do. Folks, we are living in a society who has lost the ability in a lot of ways to overlook things that have no meaning whatsoever. That's where we've come up with this idea of being so politically correct. You can't even tell a joke, even if it's a good one and a clean one, without offending someone. And so we, we've lost some ability there. But at the same time, we can't simply overlook things, and misconduct and other things, because some things simply are not to be overlooked, especially if there is misconduct involved. And some, even though they overlook things, they, they go to the extreme with it. And they let people get by with just everything. And that can't be as well. You see, we have to learn to identify and acknowledge when we've been hurt and when we have hurt other people. We have to be able to see that in our own life. Now here's something you need to remember. Remorse is an important part of receiving forgiveness. Remorse is an important part of receiving forgiveness. You know, it comes only, forgiveness can come only after acknowledging our guilt. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, the Bible says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, you see, Paul had written to the Corinthians, and we know that is the book of 1 Corinthians. And one of the things that he had written about in the book of 1 Corinthians was a man who was uh, having an immoral relationship with his uh, stepmother. And, and he had told uh, the church there that they were to, to put him away, that they were treating him wrong by allowing him to remain in that uh, condition. And then not only that, you had other folks in chapter 6 who were suing one another. And there are all kinds of things that were going on in the, book, in the city of Corinth, in the church at Corinth. And Paul said, I wrote you a letter. And he said, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, Paul said, 
And if I were putting it in my own words, Paul said, I hate to have to make you sorry. I hate to have to bring these things to your attention. It hurts me to have to talk about these things and to correct you in the way that I did. It hurts me. And I hate that you had to go through it, but I'm not sorry from the standpoint that you did to the point that it made you do what's right. It made you turn your life around. And so the grief that was produced by the things that Paul wrote was good. The remorse that they felt that led them to change their life, to change the things that they were doing, was the thing that was necessary and was proper for a person. We don't like to hurt today, do we? If we have some kind of pain, you know, how, even how minor it may be, we won't appeal to make it better. Take it away. Get rid of it right now. And just like it is with, with our physical body when we don't want to hurt, we don't want to have to hurt in a mental state either. And yet sometimes that is necessary to get us to do that in order to be able to turn our life around. And so we have to identify the hurt and feel remorse sometimes before we can move on. But that brings us to the second point. You see, we must learn the art of confronting and confessing as well. Neither of these two things are very comfortable at all. If you've been betrayed, confronting the betrayer is a necessity. But it's not just to spill the rage that you have toward them. It is to express some of the feelings of hurt and anger that you have, but even more than that. You see, it should be with the attitude and the desire of healing the relationship that is in jeopardy. And so the idea of, of confronting, it, it's not comfortable, but it's necessary. Do you remember David after his adultery with Bathsheba? How that he himself was confronted? Uh, the story of Nathan, the prophet who came and told David about the man who had the uh, all that he wanted, all of the sheep that he wanted, and his neighbor had one little ewe lamb. Uh, we read that Bible passage this morning. And, and what did Nathan say to David? David became outraged because this man had killed this, one, this man's one little ewe lamb. And, and Nathan said, King, you're the man because you have taken Bathsheba's uh, or, or you've taken Bathsheba, the wife of another. He was confronted. And, of course, as we note the con confrontation, Nathan was sent by God to do that. The same is true when we turn to the passages in the New Testament that would help us deal with these things. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. What is that? That is confronting the one who has offended you. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to the you, you have gained your brother. You know, a lot of times we don't want to confront. We just want to talk. But we don't want to talk to the person who's offended us. We want to talk to everybody else. We, we want to talk to everybody but the person who has offended us or hurt us or betrayed us. And so we talk to all of them and we never confront Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
And if he listens, you've gained your brother. Now, if you put that in the place of marriage, if you confront the one who has betrayed you in a, in a sexual way, or if you confront the one who's just hurt you by some other action that they have committed, and you go and you talk and you sit down and you talk, talk the things through, then you have gained, saved your marriage. Isn't that what we were talking about? And so the idea here is it should be pretty clear. He goes on in this passage and said, if they don't listen, then take two or three with you. If they don't listen to the, uh, to the two or three who, are, who have gone with you, then take it to the church. But the process is there. And we need to remember what Jesus said. But here's something else. In the book of Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, the Bible says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. In other words, you are the one who has done the wrong and you are, you're seeking to live your life and to, to live it as normal and you have even come to worship your God and you remember that you've done something wrong to your brother. The Bible says leave your gift at the altar. And go and first be reconciled. Folks, I don't see how you could remember that you've done something wrong to, the pers- to another person and go to them without confessing. And so in that first passage, we saw the confrontation. But in this one, we see the confessing of what we have done. Confessing to the one that we have hurt, that we have wronged, that we have injured. And so as we look at it again, Jesus addresses That matter. You see, if you've wronged your spouse, maybe the spouse doesn't even know it, but you do. And it becomes necessary for you to take the responsibility to seek to right the wrongs, whatever they are, to seek to right the wrongs that you have done. You know, confession is hard, but it is necessary. And so... As we think about confession, it's when we admit our responsibility for the hurts that we've caused others. We own up to the guilt and the fact that we have violated a relationship that we were committed to. And it means that we have come to blame no one but ourselves. We acknowledge that fact. In the book of Proverbs 28, verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You see, we have to learn the art of confronting and confessing. But then not only that, we must take on the challenging conversations. Take on the challenging conversations. You know... It's reasonable to initially ask your spouse to give the details of of what happened. Why? Why did this happen? What caused this to take place, this adultery that's within our marriage? Or or if it's something else between two people who who are not married and it's, you know, just some reason that we've hurt another person, we, we said something, we need to ask why. But we can't let ourselves become obsessed with the details, especially the details of a spouse's adultery, because doing so will only 
torment us and prevent us from moving forward, from moving on and, and healing. And that's what we're seeking to do. And when we're talking about the conversations that are so quiet, so very challenging, the conversations that really have to take place are those that help us to gain a better understanding of the how and the why the hurts came about. And from these conversations, you see, we have to come up with a plan of action. It's not just talking about the why, but, but the how and the, the causes and, and, and coming up with a process, a solution, so that we can avoid the situation again because we want to heal the marriage. We want to save it. What do we do now? From this point forward, what do we do now is a question that we have to ask. And you know what? Sometimes in those hard conversations, our own eyes may be open to how insensitive we've been to our spouse's needs and requests that perhaps pushed them away and cause them to turn to another person. You see, they're challenging conversations because it shows that quite often both have some responsibility. And so we need to think about that. We need to be able to confront those kinds of things in our own life, talk about them, and talk them through. Maybe this passage is one that we should remember, at least the first part of it. The Bible says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. You see, God wants people, He wants them to understand His will. And He phrases it in this way, let us reason together. And when we're able to work these things out, when we are able to understand how God reacts to us and how we need to react back to Him in a calm and peaceful and understanding way, our sins can be forgiven. The same can be true between a husband and a wife, between two friends, between neighbors. You see, we can work these things out. Come, let us reason together. Really and truly, let's talk about it in a reasonable manner. We must do the same in our own relationships. But then number four, we must work on the process of forgiveness. Human beings are not good sometimes with forgiveness. The reason for that is because it's hard. It's hard to forgive folks. But not only is it hard to forgive folks, it's hard to forgive ourselves sometimes. Being forgiven is hard as well. But our ability to forgive comes from God. It is from Him that we learn forgiveness. Colossians chapter 3 at verse 13, the Bible says, Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against a brother, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven us, we learn forgiveness from Him. There's a man by the name of Everett Worthington who has done a lot of research on forgiveness. And part of what he has to say is quite, uh, quite revealing. And it should, you know, probably come as common sense to us 
And if we think about it, it probably does. But Mr. Worthington says that there are two forms of forgiveness. There is the decisional form of forgiveness that we must take. You see, the decisional forgiveness is intentionally changing our behavior toward another person. We simply decide that once that person has asked for forgiveness, that we're going to treat them right. We're going to treat them with love. We're going to treat them as God would treat us. Somebody says, you know what, I just don't know that I could do that. Let me give us a passage that we need to chew on and think about. It's found in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10 at verse number 5. There Paul writes and says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And here's the part that I want us to see. It's not necessarily talking about the idea of forgiveness, but the, the, the point is, uh, is valid. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. If Christ has commanded me that I must be one who forgives... And yet I am saying, I can't do that. Something is amiss. Jesus didn't give us, God didn't give us something that we cannot do. And so I have to be the boss of me. I I have to be the boss of my mind. Sometimes I simply have to say, I will do this. I'm going to treat the person right. Is that easy? No, I've already admitted forgiveness is hard. But we're working on the process of forgiveness. If we sit around and we say, I can't forgive, I'll never forgive, is how it's said more often. I'll never forgive because it hurts so bad then we are in the wrong. I have to take captive, take charge of my own mind and say I'm willing to give it a shot. But then not only is there that decisional forgiveness, there is the emotional forgiveness. Sometimes we get the two mixed up. There's the emotional forgiveness that comes along as well. And when we're talking about the emotional forgiveness... You see, it can only come about after the intentional forgiveness has been accomplished. That's when I change my attitude and feelings back to a more positive view about the person. I say that I'm going to forgive, and over time my feelings can change. Key words, over time. We have to give it time. So that's why I said we have to work on the process of forgiveness. It's not just a, an overnight thing. It's not something that the one who has wronged you, the spouse who perhaps has committed adultery, comes and says, I am so sorry. And the husband or the wife, whoever it may be, says, I forgive you. And you just go on your merrily way as if nothing ever happened. That will not happen but you determine that you will forgive, and over time that emotional forgiveness can follow suit. Come along behind and be the kind of person that you need to be. 
But then, next of all, last of all, we must learn to let go and move on. Have you ever heard the term forgive and forget? You've heard that, haven't you? Well, I want want us to understand that it's a mistake to think that we'll ever completely forget the painful events. It's not quite an accurate statement when we're saying forgive and forget. Matter of fact, it's a myth that when we forgive someone, we also forget what they've done. You'll always be able to recall it. But your goal is to let it become less and less upsetting over time and to think about it less and less often. You see, understanding forgiveness or understanding how God forgives and forgets will help us. In the book of Hebrews chapter 8 at verse number 12, the Bible says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. May I ask you a question this morning? How could an omniscient God, by the word omniscient we simply mean a God who knows everything, how could a God who knows everything forget that we've sinned and fallen short of His glory? As He says we have done in Romans chapter 3 verse 23. How could He do that? Well, He won't. You see, we sometimes have misunderstood what it means when Jesus or God says that He will remember our sins no more. Under the Old Testament, there was a reminder of sins every year. You see, under the Old Testament law, the priest, the high priest, had to offer a sacrifice in the Holy of Holies and and, and there was a process by which that was done and they would take the sins of the people and lay it on a a ram and drive it out out into the... but they did it every year. The sins under the Old Testament law were never actually forgiven until Christ came along and His blood flowed backwards to cleanse us in because we understand the blood of bulls and goats, according to the book of Hebrews, could never take the sins away. But every year there was a reminder that was made of the sins. And so in the book of Hebrews chapter 8 at verse 12, God speaks of a time when He would remember their sins no more. There would be no more a, a, a need to remember them again, especially on a yearly basis. And thus we turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. When Christ had offered all, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected all for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, He has perfected for all time. No longer remember their sins. Once our sins are forgiven, God doesn't bring them up again. There's no reminder of them again. No wonder then, when we turn to the book of Romans chapter 8 at verse number 1, we read these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, a good way of thinking about that is that God has forgiven our sins and He no longer condemns us. In other words, He has let us off the hook. 
for our past transgressions. He's not going to keep reminding us, do you know what you used to be? Do you remember what you did way back there on this date so long ago? When the blood of Jesus cleanses our sins from us. God still knows we did them, but he lets us off the hook. You see, we have to make the choice to let our spouse off the hook for his or her past transgressions and move on. And folks, there's no more of this daily or weekly or monthly or yearly reminders. And there's no more of that when the next time you have a disagreement, you bring that up, whatever that is. Because when we do that, we have not forgiven like God. And we have not let go and moved on. Folks, as a Christian, we are part of the church, the bride of Christ. When we sin, we commit spiritual adultery. In the book of James, chapter 4, verse number 4, James writes these words. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. James uses the term, you adulterous people. But were they literally committing sexual sin? Probably not. Because he had just accused them of being murderers. By their actions toward one another. And they were still alive. And so, in a, in a spiritual sense, they were adulterous because they wanted to be friends with the world. They wanted to be like everybody else around them. When we become Christians, we're part of the bride of Christ. But if we sin, if we try to be like the world, we are committing spiritual adultery. Aren't we glad that God can and will forgive us and restore us to a right relationship with Him. We can and we should do the same in our own marriages. There are two imperfect people who have come together to form a marriage. Folks, we can survive infidelity in marriage without untying the knot if we're willing to trust God and His plan. And we can work out our differences with friends with whom we've had a falling out if we will trust God and follow His plan. And we can make our marriages stronger, even if we've already got a good one, if we but follow God and His plan. Are you following God's plan this morning? Good question when it comes to our marriages. But it's an even better question when it comes to our spiritual life, isn't it? How's our spiritual life? How are we faring? If Jesus was to come today, where would we spend our eternity? Question we have to ask. Maybe we're here this morning, we understand that if we're not living our life in accordance with His will, that we'll be lost. His blood can cleanse you of your sins.
believing in Him and repenting of the sins and making the great confession and being immersed, buried with Jesus to meet His blood and have His blood cleanse your sins can be done. We can take you and immerse you, bury you with Him today in the watery grave of baptism. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but your life's not been right with God. Maybe you've committed some of that spiritual adultery by trying to be like the world, talking, acting, whatever it may be. And you need to come back to God and confess to Him and ask for His forgiveness. What are you waiting on? Make that your goal, your aim, the thing that you're going to do right now as together we stand and sing. Trusting in His graces, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed? In the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Are your garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb?
It's great to see our crowd here today. It's a great day uh, to be able to worship here and and to be able to um, hear the lesson that Mark presented this morning about our marriage. Ann Wilson has responded to the invitation this morning, and she is uh, wanting us to pray for her that she would remain humble. And that says a lot for an individual. Anne is is trying to, and correct me if I'm wrong, but she is trying to uh, move to the Gulf Shores area, and she is working on uh, helping some individuals in that area and trying to help the community in that area. And she would just like for the family here at Midway to, to pray for her to continue to be humble, that she would not let things get in her way of being uh, a community servant, and to be able to help those who are in need. So at this time, we'd like to ask Brother Eddie, if he will, come and lead a prayer on her behalf. Pray with me. Our Father, we're so thankful that you love us and care for us. We know that you love us so much that you gave your Son to die for us. And that you know our hearts and that you know the things we need. We pray, Lord, that you'll touch the heart of Ann. Help her to be humble in your side and in the side of those around her. Help her as she tries to do good, to stay on the course. We pray, Lord, that you'll bless her as she moves and and as she goes to work in another area. We pray that you'll keep her close to you, help her to draw near as she lives her life there, always having you first and foremost in her heart. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. 